Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In The Devil's Historians, How Modern Extremists Abused the Medieval Past, published by University of Toronto Press in 2020, Amy Kaufman and Paul Studevant examine the many ways in which the medieval past has been manipulated to promote discrimination, oppression, and murder. Tracing the fetish for medieval times, behind toxic ideologies like nationalism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, misogyny, and white supremacy, Kaufman and Studevant show us how the, the Middle Ages have been twisted for political purposes in every century that followed. The Devil's Historians cast aside the myth of an oppressive, patriarchal, medieval monoculture and reveals a medieval world not often shown in popular culture, one that is diverse, thriving, courageous, compelling, and complex. Amy Kaufman is a scholar of medieval studies and popular culture, and Paul Studevant is editor-in-chief of The Public Medievalist and a visitor research specialist at the Smithsonian Institution. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much Thanks for, for having, having us. us. So to get started, uh, could you each tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Let's start with Amy. Sure. Uh, so way back in grad school, uh, <laughs> I, along with medieval studies, I was studying uh, the uses of the Middle Ages in the 19th century South, how the Southern slaveholders often look back to medieval times in order to justify what they were doing, uh, the abuses that they carried out. Uh, they saw themselves as kind of new feudalists bringing chivalry and romance uh, from Europe over to America. Um, what I didn't know when I was studying that was that I would actually move to the South <laughs> for my, <laughs> my first tenure track job, which was in Macon, Georgia. And the university that I taught at, uh, Wesleyan College, had a tradition that went back to the 1920s um, where students named different classes after knights, different kinds of knights. Um, one of my colleagues dug up the yearbooks from the 1920s when we were looking into that tradition and discovered uh, that it had started with the college's allegiance to the KKK. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, here was this idyllic little women's college. Um, many of the students very progressive, but every year they would carry out these traditions uh, that that stemmed from the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so that and a number of other things that I found when I was living in the South showed me that what I had studied about the 19th century still really held true uh, in a lot of ways for Southern America today. Um, so I started looking into the evangelical movement uh, and how it used the Middle Ages and the modern Klan and how it used the Middle Ages and my work kind of built up from there. Um, once 2016 happened uh, and we saw medievalism in the streets, you know, riders carrying shields and swords and declaring themselves knights, even if they weren't affiliated with the KKK, uh, I was at that point talking to Paul, who had already started his website, The Public Medievalist, uh, and we had a discussion about what we should do, um, and I started writing for him, and I'm going to let Paul pick up the story from there. <laughs> Great, Paul. <laughs> so, way back in grad school, um, <laughs> to, to, to continue the conceit. Um, yeah, way back in grad school, I am. I was not your uh, typical medievalist. I am fundamentally interested, uh, certainly in the Middle Ages, but particularly in people, contemporary people's perception of the Middle Ages, um, how people learn about it, how people use it, how they... Um, how it is used to construct their worldviews. And so a lot of the research that I did in, my, in grad school had a, has a very hybrid um, historical sociological bent. 
and the work that I did then really also intersected in many cases with the way that the Middle Ages contributed to people's ideas about uh, Islamophobic and white supremacist studies, particularly around the Crusades. Um, fast forward a few years, uh, and I, uh, after grad school, and I founded the Public Medievalist um, as a way of trying to present the Middle Ages to the public. Um, Using effectively starting from my just myself, uh, writing in July 2014, but always with a hope that it would be something that I would be able to get other scholars to contribute to as well. And thankfully, uh, first through begging and cajoling friends, and then uh, and then actually having a a, a really remarkable um, a really remarkable contribution from the field. Uh, I had people that were writing on the public medievalist about a variety of topics. Um, yeah, the election of 20, uh, 2016 in, for us was something of a big deal. Um, I had written several articles, and I think Amy had also written a couple of articles already on the site that were about Islamophobia, that were about, um, I think, I know Amy wrote one that was about the way that ISIS used uh, the Middle Ages, uh, for the site, um, had written about racism and white supremacy, but the campaign that led up to the election, I think this is something that people tend to forget now. They look at Charlottesville really as the crystallizing event, where actually this is something that had, had been going on throughout the entire campaign. And we had been writing about it on the site and the way that medievalism was rearing its ugly head, particularly the way that the alt-right, the so-called you know, alt-right, um, the neo-fascists, uh, were using the Middle Ages in as part of their rhetoric. And so when Trump won, and when Trump was uh, set to be actually inaugurated, uh, Amy and I had a discussion about what we can or should do about it. And so we uh, started a special series that was on race, racism, and the Middle Ages, trying to grapple with this really head-on in a concerted way rather than just as articles here and there. Um, it, I think it was intended to be something like a six or an eight-part series, uh, but the reception from the field was so strong that we had people coming to us and saying, I want to contribute, I want to write for it. And so now I think, I mean, it's We've had it going since. I think we've got 46, contra 46 articles in it now. Um, it's a little less vigorous than when it started, but it's something that is uh, that has become a real, a real important piece on the site, I think. Um, we've also subsequently launched a series on uh, gender sexism in the Middle Ages as well to look at another... Uh, another facet of the way that the Middle Ages have been regarded and used in order to promote toxic ideologies today. But, uh, but because of the success of uh, the Race, Racism in the Middle Ages series, I was approached by uh, University of Toronto Press, effectively saying, is there something that you want to publish that is in this vein? And to some degree, to some degree, I didn't want to just publish the series or something like the series one because it wasn't really my property this was owned by all, all of the con contributors um but also because that was just part of this much bigger problem and so i turned to amy who was the deputy editor at the time and said do you want to work on this together and do you want to make this something that's a bigger scope than uh, than anything that we had done on the public medievalist and the rest is in your hands. <laughs> terrific, terrific. Uh, so uh, to, to step back a drop, for listeners who are not familiar with the medieval um, uh, context, uh, when you talk about medieval, what time period are you looking at and what geographical area are you including? Uh, Amy, do you want to you take You've unknowingly that? asked a very controversial question. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a few of those. This is, yeah. this is a shocker. <laughs> I know. Generally, uh, you know, it's, it's roughly 600 to 1500 uh, is considered the Middle Ages. So there's plenty of argument to go earlier, uh, some argument to go later. Um People think that the Renaissance came to places like Spain and Italy well before it came to England. Uh, but but we're roughly talking about that 
time period. Um, now, whether or not the Middle Ages is confined to Europe is, in fact, uh, a very hot topic in medieval circles right now. Um, there's a case to be made for global medievalism, right, for including much more beyond Europe, which is which is where people generally think of medieval things being. Uh, but there are also there are different kinds of periodization in other fields, right? If you're studying Japan and you just say medieval Japan, you're not really respecting the different delineations of time periods uh, that Japanese scholars make. Um, so there's a big conversation about how to extend medieval studies and make it more global and more inclusive without treading on everybody else's areas of study, <laughs> you know, right. sort of like colonizing the field in a different way. Right. And uh, Paul, um, in the book, you start off, you talk about the difference between history and the past. Well, what exactly is that distinction? Right. Um, yeah, the the difference between history and the past is that history, the past is, the past is a scientific reality. It is what has preceded us in time. It is everything that has happened, um, just in the biggest and most, the, the most rigid kind of way possible. History, on the other hand, is basically what we make of that. History is the way that we take that swirling mass of human chaos and render it into something that we as humans fundamentally understand, which is stories, effectively. Um, it takes all of those different threads and strands of evidence that we have, and it allows us to knit them together into something that allows that makes sense, that allows us to see ourselves in the people back then, and allows us to understand the strangeness of people who lived in a different place or time period. So there's a very big distinction in my mind between the past and history, whereas the past is just some you know it's it's a fact of reality. Whereas history is always under contestation. It's always being written. It's always being argued about. It's always being revised. It's not a static thing. It's something that is being produced, being used, and being misused, as we're going to talk about, um, throughout all of human history. Right. And um, Amy, why is it so important to get medieval history uh, in particular, right to to really understand uh, you know uh, medieval history as as uh, in, in as nuanced a fashion as possible. I wouldn't say that it's more important than than understanding other areas of history. I mean, if you look at the uh, very fierce and violent discussions about early American history right now, you know, it's equally important to get that right. Um, part of the reason we were drawn to talking about the Middle Ages is is very practical. That was our specialty. <laughs> you know, that's what we studied. Um, but another reason is that it's a very misunderstood period. Uh, it's a period that many people speak about with authority when they're really drawing on things like popular culture or fantasy uh, or, or portrayals of the Middle Ages that come from people who didn't like it, <laughs> didn't know it, and didn't respect it. Um, for instance, a lot of people writing in the Renaissance looked back at the Middle Ages and said that that's a period that we would have preferred to skip. That was our dark age. That's a place uh, where intellect didn't flourish. Um, and we really would prefer to think of ourselves as descendants of the Romans and the Greeks. Um, so part of the reason we use the Middle Ages, it, it's almost contradictory. Some people dismiss the period as... Uh, Umberto Eco called it humanity's childhood, right? Looking at ourselves in a, in a formative stage, um, something darker, less intelligent, less evolved. Uh, but other people glamorize it, right? They glorify it. Uh, you see that in, in fantasy TV. You see it uh, when the far right uses medieval memes um, to talk about... Uh, gender roles, for instance, uh, knighthood and ladies, chivalry, things like that. Um, you use it when people, you see it when people use the Middle Ages to talk about racial division. 
uh, to say that everyone used to live in his or her place, right? And there was no sort of communication between people of different ethnicities. These are all myths about the Middle Ages. They're all false, but they're myths that people believe in and that are perpetuated by our popular culture. Uh, They're very hard to break through. Right. And you talk a lot about the misuse of of history, specifically medieval history. Uh, Paul, I'm wondering, how can you spot if history is being wielded as a weapon? (laughs) Um, If it is being used to promote hatred and violence against other people. Um, there, I've, I'm often asked the question of what is the difference how, between a use of history and a misuse of history. And for me, the misuse of history is fundamentally in the eye of the beholder. It is in the eye of uh, the person who is looking at that and seeing whether or not it is being used to good or ill purpose. Um, but where Amy and I come down, and I think a lot of people I would hope come down, uh, who would be reading this book, it is if you are using history in order to justify injustices, in order to justify oppressing women, in order to justify hating gay people, in order to justify invading the Muslim world, in order to justify um, genocide or, or dog whistles towards genocide, then that is a misuse of history. Um, History is used every day. History can be used in very positive ways, but there are very, very awful ways that it can be used as well. Right. And Amy, you already touched on this, but just to kind of lay it out a drop more, when did the idea of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages begin and why? Uh, Paul's actually better with this question. (laughs) Sure. That's okay. You could call a friend. That's okay. Call your friend. I I know you'll remember the names of the scholars better than I will. Oh, I'm not so sure about that one, but yeah. No, it was the Italian humanists in the 15th century. They were the ones uh, who really started calling the Middle Ages the Dark Ages, Um, And it was from, I I, I like, the metaphor that I like to use when I talk about this is that people in the Renaissance were really like teenagers who were still living in their parents' basement, but wearing (laughs) their grandfather's clothes and thinking that their grandparents were like the coolest people in the world. So they are the inheritors of all of the medieval intellectual culture, medieval artistic culture, medieval early globalism and trade and all of the good things that the Middle Ages produced. But they're the ones who are then looking at the Middle Ages and going, oh, they're just, they're just intellectually bankrupt. Grandpa, back in the classical period, those are the people who are the coolest. Those are the people that we really need to look at and really model our societies off of, in spite of the fact that they, when they were doing so, they were really doing that based on a fantasy And they wouldn't have been able to do that if the Middle Ages hadn't carefully preserved the legacy of the classical period for them to consume. So it's so this Renaissance idea of a dark age is something that was invented for a very specific purpose. It was invented to really present themselves as a break from their immediate past and to show how special they really were. Um, I think that it's unfortunate that subsequent generations haven't really called them on that, and they actually took them kind of at face value. Um, So that's kind of the story, without necessarily naming specific names, because it's late on a Wednesday. Um, But... But that's the broad story of how we got the idea of the Middle Ages as being a dark age. Right. And speaking about kind of intellectual culture and and knowledge, uh, uh, Amy, there's a popular perception that medieval people were uneducated, illiterate, or ignorant. Uh, To what extent is this uh, a myth or completely uh, divorced from the, the lived reality of people during that period? About a thousand percent, <laughs> about a thousand percent wrong. I mean, the the Middle Ages, they're just um, an intellectual wellspring. And I think, too, you know, that that myth is one of the symptoms of limiting, limiting our conception of the Middle Ages to England, you know, <laughs> or someplace from which we don't have a lot of writing. If you look at Al-Andalus, uh, for instance, um, in the earlier part of the Middle Spain. Ages, 
yeah, Muslim ruled Spain, uh, Northern Africa, uh, Portugal, uh, even Italy, all these places just have tons and tons of writing that we would now consider scientific uh, astronomy, mathematics, literature, um, medicine, cookbooks, <laughs> I mean, just all of this writing, all this art, it was really flourishing society. And, you know, Spain borders France, all of their ideas moved up uh, into France, France and England interacted um, what became Germany, all these areas, they're all talking to each other and exchanging with each other and writing and thinking. Um, and it's it's an incredible time. I mean, there's so much knowledge there. Uh, sorry, I just lost my <laughs> lost my train of thought speaking of knowledge and being uh, late on a Wednesday. Uh, uh, so let me ask you um, a related question, Amy. Um, there's, a, a, again, a sort of popular uh, a perception that medieval, that medieval people uh, or, or people uh, uh, up until the modern period uh, didn't know that the earth is round. Is this, uh, 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 does this have any credence? And if no. not, where did this come from? I mean, how did people come up with this idea? So uh, Shiloh Carroll has a great article on the public medievalists about um, modern flat earth conspiracists, and they are fairly modern uh, in relatively speaking, like the last couple of hundred years. But medieval people absolutely knew the, the earth was round. They wrote about it all the time. And, uh, you know, the people have known the world was round all the way back to ancient Greece. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's something everybody knew this, this sort of myth. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's tied to these whitewashing myths of Christopher Columbus, you know, going uh, to the court in Spain and saying, I believe the earth is round, you know, and I'm going to sail uh, and discovering America instead of instead of portraying it as the brutal slavery mission that it really was, uh, the brutal conquest that it really was. Um, so that that flat earth myth, it was perpetuated by American textbooks for decades, uh, but it was not a part of the Middle Ages. Uh and I remembered where I was going before, which that, uh, which is that a lot of times people think that um, medieval people were ignorant because religion made them that way. Whereas the religious writing of the Middle Ages, whether that's uh, Jewish or Christian or Muslim or anything else, is is deeply intellectual. Uh, each each of those three faiths believed that God gave people reason, um, and logic and that they were meant to think their way through things. Uh, the sort of anti-intellectual religious bent really happened after the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. All right. Well, speaking of, um, of religion and, um, and the medieval world, um, uh, what, uh, Paul, what is the relationship between biblical literalism and medieval faith, if any? Oh, very little, <laughs> um, to be honest. Um, picking up, this is very much picking up uh, where Amy left off, where there was not, there were many competing schools of thought about uh, the Bible and the way that it should be read and understood and interpreted um, that are not at all compatible with, frankly, I'll just say it, that are not at all really compatible with what a lot of the modern contemporary evangelical movement would recognize. Um, the contemporary evangelical movement, uh, in many ways, they advocate for a position of just reading the Bible and the spirit will move you to understand it fully, even though it's translated in English and is something that, and, and has many different versions, but that it is an act of faith that through reading the Bible, you will be able to plainly understand it without any further study. That is the furthest from what a medieval person would have done with their Bible. There were endless commentaries and discussions on the Bible that were produced by medieval theologians trying to understand, reinterpret, um, see the middle, see, um, see the Bible through a variety of layers, looking at it metaphorically or looking at it allegorically, looking at it, um, looking at it perhaps literally, but that with an understanding that there are a variety of different truths that could be had and that they are 
only accessed through intense study and actually through going back to the source, retranslating, reinterpreting those translations rather than this idea that you can read your own vernacular and get uh, the, the perfect meaning as just poured into your skull from God. That's not something that a medieval Christian would have given much credence to at all. Right. So I, I get, oh, please, please, Amy, go ahead. <laughs> I, I just wanted to add that, you know, it's, it's important to know that in the middle ages, the thing we think of as the Bible, you know, as a fixed <laughs> published book that never changes did not exist. Yeah. Uh, even in Christianity, uh, all of the different texts and apocrypha uh, and translations vary depending on where you were, on who you were listening to, on what kind of scholars uh, you were talking to. There was lots of comparative research. Uh, so it, it doesn't become fixed in its form until after the Middle Ages. So there are texts and there are discussions. Uh, this is true of um, Christianity. It's also true to a certain extent uh, of Judaism and Islam. What was and was not canon uh, was constantly discussed and constantly argued and in flux. Right. I I wonder, um, Paul, if if there's something that that we could uh, learn from the way that this myth about the kind of simplicity or biblical literalism um, of the Middle Ages, this how this myth developed. In other words, is like was there any kernel of truth that um, was used to develop this myth of the role of religion in the Middle Ages, or was this sort of invented out of whole cloth from people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later for their own uh, partisan, you know, reasons? Frankly, I think maybe not necessarily whole cloth, but about as close to it as you can get. (laughs) I think that, and this is something that we talk about in the book, but this is actually one of the bigger, um, one of the bigger points that is important to understand about the way that the Middle Ages is used, has been used and is used. Um, And that is that people will use the Middle Ages, one of the ways that people commonly use the Middle Ages is a kind of authority is to cloak themselves in history in historical authority and to claim what I am doing is something that has been done for a thousand years and goes all the way back to the middle ages. And a lot of times that's not true. Um, but particularly religious extremists, um, religious extremists of all faiths and, and, and types often will look back to the middle ages and say, this is where we get our traditions from as a way of trying to say, we have been doing this in perpetuity and therefore we are a more authentic version of Christianity. We are a more authentic version of Islam or Judaism. Um, and none of that authenticity really is true. Almost all of it actually comes from the 19th century. Um, if you look at Shiloh Carroll's article on the uh, on the public medievals that Amy was talking about, about the flat earthers, she talks about the way that 19th century evangelicals invented this idea of the flat earth as a way of, and tied it to the Middle Ages specifically to give themselves that kind of historical cover, when in reality they weren't medievalists, they didn't really know. They were just using the Middle Ages as a way of saying, this is the precedent that uh, that will get me what I want. If, if I could just add that scholars are not blameless in, oh, in, this, no. in this conception of the Middle Ages as a super religious time where everybody was dutiful and, and obedient. Um, part of that 19th century movement that Paul was talking about uh, was was that education should be edifying. Uh, and the church often had, the Catholic church specifically, I'm talking about, had a lot of influence on what texts were chosen and what texts were taught from the Middle Ages. So very often, you know, if you're a student in the 1950s, you might get um, religious and, and devotional literature in your classroom. But as a professor of mine uh, who got his degree at Boston College told me, you know, the Canterbury Tales used to be locked up in a glass case because mm. it was critical of the church, because it was full of sex. Um, so many of the texts that we, that medieval scholars know now weren't studied until 30 years ago. Uh, and that includes texts written by women who weren't Julian of Norwich. <laughs> um, mm. <laughs> and texts about uh, 
texts that include queer experiences or what we would now interpret as queer or even transgender experiences, texts that were critical of religious figures, all of that, uh, and, and texts that show racial diversity, all of that is fairly recent. And that has a lot to do with scholars, uh, some of whom were medievalists, you know, and, and what they chose to put in the classroom and write about and what they didn't. Right. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm wondering, Amy, you, you kind of mentioned this before, but if you could elaborate a little bit on it, um, what role did myths about the Middle Ages play in the development of uh, American racism in particular? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, because, you know, part of the conceit of the American dream is its independence from Europe. Um, but in the South in particular, and there was very much in the 19th century uh a divide between the way the North saw itself and the way the South saw itself. Uh, the South saw itself as a medieval renaissance <laughs> is a contradiction, <laughs> but it, as sort of recreating this glorious dream of castles and chivalry. Uh, they were primarily agricultural. This was part of it, whereas the North was industrial and they saw the North as sort of dirty and corrupted, um, you know, working with machines, not interested in the finer things in life, uh, whereas the South had the idea of itself as a kind of lazy royalty, you know, a landed gentry. Um, for the South, they saw themselves as descended directly from many of the knights that they read about in 19th century literature. And on both sides of the pond, in uh, in the UK and in America, there was a real revival of medieval literature, um, but it was very often censored and toned down uh, to speak to whatever themes Victorians thought were important. Um, so there were a lot of people who grew up in the South reading Ivanhoe, you know, or, or, or reading um, sort of toned down Arthurian stories, uh, stories of Gawain and the Green Knight uh, with all the interesting parts cut out. Uh, and and they, they grew up on these stories and they saw themselves in them um, because, because race and class were so deeply intertwined, not just in the South, but everywhere, um, but in the economic structure of the South, uh, they really looked to the Middle Ages as a model and, and, and something... Oh, sorry. sorry. No, and no, something, they, <laughs> something they should recreate. And if you read abolitionist literature uh, written by Northerners, they use the Middle Ages in the opposite way. They call the South medieval uh, and they call it sinful and corrupt and associate it with the Dark Ages and medieval things. So it really depends uh, to, to a certain extent which part of America you're talking about. Right. But but for just to stick with the South for a minute, for uh, uh, people in the South, when they're connecting in their mind with what they perceive or what they imagine, what they fantasize the Middle Ages were about, what part of that do they take or do they construct to kind of justify their own racist um, views and, 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 and uh, racial oppression in the South? whiteness <laughs> and which is imagined right it's it's imaginary that the middle ages is all white but that was a version of the middle ages that they were fed on uh this kind of pure white place um where white men were heroes and had a lot of power and uh went on crusade uh and conquered the world and were brave and bold and noble they really connected uh their race and their notion of race to this European past uh, that they imagined. Um, so it, it, you can't, you really can't separate whiteness uh, from the fantasy of the middle ages in the American South. Now there has been some great work uh, by Matthew Vernon on how black Americans use the middle ages to kind of contradict a lot of these ideas and, and even create their own, uh, chivalric narratives and and sort of reappropriate them and turn them to good purposes but even today uh when you talk about chivalric customs and medievalism in the south it's still incredibly racially loaded it's, it's still loaded with a concept of whiteness unspoiled by contact with non-European parts of the world, which, as we discuss in the book, is a completely false idea of the Middle Ages, uh, but it's one that people really cling to. 
Right. And Paul, how does the memory, in quotes, of medieval life get used today by nationalist movements? Oh, that's a question. Okay. (laughs) So I want to explain for the listeners a little bit about what you mean by memory. Um, Memory, when an academic uses it, particularly an academic historian or someone who is interested in public history, we're talking not just about what you and I remember, but we're talking about cultural memory. We're talking about collective memory. We're talking about the way that we understand and reinterpret history in any given moment. So that's what you mean by, by memory. When it comes to nationalist movements, starting in the 19th century all the way till today, they, that typically, especially European nationalist movements, have looked to the Middle Ages as a kind of origin point. So it's not just religions that are using uh, the Middle Ages as their sort of time immemorial uh, that allows that ju- that gives them the justification to exist. Uh, this is also nationalist movements that are saying, ah, we are a group that traces our lineage back to this medieval group, and therefore that means that we are connected to this land, which means that we should have a nation that is inclusive of these people, exclusive of these people, inclusive of this land, exclusive of that land. Um, these nationalists have these nationalists used it in in England in order to justify English superiority, uh, both over the constituent parts of the uh, of the uh, of Great Britain and also. Uh, to justify English imperialism, um, but this has also been used in France and Italy and Germany and all the national movements, uh, nationalist movements that you saw in the 19th century. And we can't talk about nationalism and medievalism without talking about the Nazis, um, because the Nazis were the inheritors of German nationalist movements from the 19th century, but they turbocharged it. And if the nationalists of the 19th century weaponized it, they turned it towards genocide. Um, They took this idea of German nationalism and morphed it into this grander idea of Aryan nationalism and and Aryan supremacy, which is based on just, just nonsense, just absolute nonsense. But it is something that they believed deeply Uh, and used as a way of trying to reconstruct themselves as the inheritors of this superior racialized group that included both uh, the greater Germany, which effectively was just anywhere that they decided it was, um, and also Scandinavia, and then also allowed them to send out archaeological missions effectively to various places to find artifacts that would prove a Germanic link to those places as well that would then justify their conquest of those places. And so the and so it's really difficult to talk about nationalism with nationalist movements without looking at um, without looking at the model that the Nazis created for it. Um, because, and also when you're talking about contemporary nationalists, you do have to look at contemporary neo-Nazis um, because they're, though I'm sure contemporary nationalists would uh, scream bloody murder at me for saying so, um, there isn't necessarily a lot of room between the two. There's a lot of cross-pollination, particularly when you get to the more and more extreme right-wing fringes of it. Um, and so you see, again, looking at Charlottesville, you see these white supremacist groups, these nationalist groups, um, using medieval symbols uh, in order to try to lay claim to some some mythologized grandness that they, uh, even if it did exist, they certainly don't deserve. Right. right. And um, Amy, um, what is the chivalric code and why do some scholars refer to it as a racket? <laughs> So, so the so-called chivalric code, uh, it stems from Arthurian legend and it's a, in the medieval texts, it's a series of rules about what knights can and cannot do to women <laughs> and then whether or not they should obey them. Uh, scholars like Dorsey Armstrong have called it a protection racket, uh, 
because the idea is that if women are noble enough and obedient enough, uh, then knights will protect them. Men will protect them from other men. Um, the chivalric code is a code that says that knights should be obedient to women and should uh, protect them from violence and sexual assault and things like that. Uh, but it really has only ever applied to women of means, uh, important daughters, important wives, uh, and women who don't misbehave. So it's, it's structured in such a way that there's a class of women who are protected and there's a class of women who are victims. And it's very easy to slip between the two. That, that was true in the Middle Ages. Uh, in Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Artur, for instance, um, you have women who are bowed to and who give orders to knights uh, and who are rescued. And you also have women who are accidentally murdered and women who are raped uh, and women who are intentionally murdered, depending on whether or not they've transgressed the social rules. Uh, and you still see that today, that there are, there are women who are supposed to be put up on a pedestal, um, but that requires another class of women who are abused. So it, it's called a racket because, you know, mafia style, it, it says, you do what we say and we'll protect you from ourselves. Right. And Paul, what were the actual gender dynamics uh, to the extent that we can make any kind of generalizations uh, in the medieval world? Mm. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this, but Amy is far more expert on this than I am. So I'm going to pass it to her fairly quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, I th that a lot of the ideas about gender dynamics that we have today, particularly around things like chivalry, actually come to us, frankly, from the 19th century. Um, the 19th century Victorians, uh, they looked to the Middle Ages, they looked to the Middle Ages, the, uh, excuse me, they looked to the Middle Ages in similar ways to the nationalists and the religious uh, folks, they looked to the Middle Ages to justify their own social mores the, around gender. And so they constructed this idea of chivalry as being something that was um, that was about politeness and gentility, that it was a, that was specifically about class. Uh, and that, you know, if you ask somebody today, what is chivalric behavior? They'll talk about opening doors for women and they'll talk about defending someone's honor, but that sort of stuff is not, you know, it's not really reflective of medieval texts so much as it is Victorian reinterpretations of those medieval texts. Um, in the Middle Ages, as, as Amy was talking about, there was, uh, there was a very, the chivalry was very different. Um, chivalry, if you read the chivalric manuals, for example, several knights produced manuals that were eff effectively trying to teach other knights or especially young knights how to be a good knight. And almost all of it is devoted to how to be a warrior, how to be a warrior that dominates on the battlefield. And everything else is very much secondary. Um, and all of that secondary stuff is also about, about seeming proper, about seeming wealthy, about seeming powerful, about seeming to be following social rules. Whereas, for example, when you think of chivalry today, you think of this sort of chaste longing for a woman from afar uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in an entirely proper sort of way. Whereas, um, whereas during the Middle Ages, a lot of this courtly love uh, literature really is about pretty overt sexual pursuits, usually of someone that you are not married to, someone other than your wife. And so it was it was about illicit affairs, how to have them and how to keep them secret and how important <laughs> it was to keep them secret. <laughs> and so that shows you a very different idea of the medieval mindset vis-a-vis -vis gender. And I'm going to pass to Amy because I'm sure she's got a lot more to add. Sure. So, so the stereotype of medieval gender is that women were passive, they stayed home, they took care of the kids, um, and they were always in danger, and that men were, you know, honorable and manly and strong, but brutal. Uh, but what we know about the Middle Ages is completely this different. First of all, almost all women worked of any class. Uh, and they worked in professions that I think modern people don't expect. They brewed beer. They were writers. They were healers. They were poets. Uh, they were theologians and philosophers. Um, 
women were also very aware of sexism, very aware of their situation. And when they wrote, they often wrote about it. So Christine de Pizan has a whole book uh, called The Book of the City of Ladies, where she takes on sexist poetry like the uh, Roman de la Rose and, um, and takes it apart point by point to show you know, how it's slandering women. Uh, there's a nun called Crosvita who wrote parodies of plays from the Roman world uh, and, and turned the sexist, what we would today call memes, <laughs> the sexist themes against uh, the men in her plays, you know, so that at the end they're getting beaten by frying pans by angry women. Uh, so, so not only were women active, they were aware of their oppression. And that oppression really varied depending on where you were um, and when you were. There were many different periods where women had a lot more power, and then there were periods and places where it was taken away. Um, Women's progress has not been linear in any way. (laughs) There's often advancement and movement backwards. I think it's the same with any social progress. And then uh, lastly, the gender roles that we impose on the Middle Ages uh, are not authentic to the Middle Ages at all. We tend to think of gender as this kind of natural state that can't be altered. You know, men were men and women were women, and they were definitely more like men and women in the Middle Ages. Um, but what men and women thought of themselves in the Middle Ages and what people who didn't think of themselves as men or women thought in the Middle Ages uh, is completely different from what we would expect. Men in medieval literature are often crying and fainting and overcome with emotion. Um, women were thought of as the lustier and more sexual uh, and more animal of the two genders. Uh, And then there's a whole category of writing about what we would today call non-binary gender. Uh, And and often this is in religious writing because there was uh, in in many theological circles a belief that gender was a part of the prison of the body after the fall. This is a, a religious way of thinking and that many saints could just transcend gender altogether. Uh, and that even the angels did not have gender. So it's far more complicated. Uh, Gender is much more complicated than it is today, even though I know a lot of people say it's very complicated today. (laughs) Well, just to stick with you, Amy, for for one second, and you you kind of touched on this already, but what do we know about LGBTQ people in the medieval world? Again, this is very much something that varies depending on when and where you are. Uh, so in Al-Andalus, uh, bisexuality is very accepted, relatively standard. Um, men have relationships with men, and it's well documented. Um, women have relationships with women, and it's partly documented, although I will say that, and this is consistent of the with the medieval and the ancient world, there's far less information about women's relationships with women because, unfortunately, people did not think of that as real sex. <laughs> they, they thought of it as... Um, penetrative sex was the only only thing you really had to worry about. Uh, but there there are male male relationships documented throughout medieval Europe and outside of Europe. Uh, there's plenty about it in Viking literature, and what we know of it in more traditional places, uh, we often see male male sexuality sodomy on a list of sins. Uh, but on a list of sins with things like masturbation and, um, you know, forgetting to pray on Sunday, you know, to, <laughs> not, not sort of the outsized sin that it became uh, in the 19th century. Right, right. Um, really interesting. Um, uh, so, Paul, um, we've been speaking about um, all sorts of ways that uh, medieval history, perceptions of medieval history, uh, feed into very kind of destructive things um, in in contemporary uh, times. Are there creative, positive, kind of pro-social ways of engaging in medieval history and culture? Absolutely. Um, I think it's important to recognize. I think it's something that it's easy to forget when you get so far into the muck and mire of these toxic uses of the Middle Ages Uh, you begin to think, is there nothing good that can come from this? And that's one of the reasons actually why I, I, uh, that was really behind my ideas in founding uh, the public medievalist was by showing 
the public that there is something to be gotten from the Middle Ages rather than just awful stories of people doing terrible things to each other and awful people today using it to justify terrible things to each other. So one of the things I know, there's a vibrant reenactment uh, movement that is that has its own grapplings, of course, with people who are white supremacists within their within their movements. But there are also very progressive people who are looking to the Middle Ages and seeing people that they want to hold up, um, that they want to emulate, that they want to play as or in the lives of, and that that's a perfectly valid and fun way to do it. I think there's also, um, there is a very interesting line that you can draw between the arts and crafts movement of the 19th century, which was very explicitly aping medieval ways of creating things in the face of the horrors of industrialism that you saw in the 19th century. And you can draw a pretty straight line between that and contemporary crafting movements like the things you see on Etsy or you see people beginning to make things by hand again and appreciate the value of making things by hand. And though that's not necessarily always medievalism, there is that line that exists and a lot of the handcrafted things that you see on Etsy have have some kind of medieval... Um, ideas behind them. You see book binders, you see people who are creating clothing, who are creating even things like armor um, that have uh, that have themselves uh, interesting medieval roots. So there's a lot that you can look at uh, if you look at the Middle Ages and you are looking for people who were resisting the tides of sexism, of racism, of oppression. You can find them if you're looking for them. You can find heroes in the Middle Ages, heroes that would even be okay heroes for us today, believe it or not. Uh, it's not just the trash fire of history. It it was complicated. It was full of people who did terrible things and full of people who did great things. And people who were just trying to get by in between, very much like, frankly, us. Right. And just a, a follow-up question, Paul, are there particular people or, or, or movements or schools of thought or, or things like that, that, um, that people that are interested in engaging in the Middle Ages in a kind of positive way today that they tap into? You know mm. what I mean? You know, I don't, I'm not really sure. I think that there's a lot of, I mean, I, in terms of the arts and crafts movement, I look at William Morris as a really interesting uh, figure within the arts and crafts movement, both uh, as a, uh, as a craftsman, as someone who's very interested in the Middle Ages, but also in, as an early socialist, um, as someone who's very politically engaged as well, and looking at the Middle Ages as some as a time, again, prior to the horrors of industrialization and empire, um, looking at it as a sort of proto-socialist sort of society, at least when you, if you remove all the aristocrats. Um, and so I think that certainly there are there are movements that you can look at in the Middle Ages that um, that might be useful for today, but it's I don't necessarily see particular groups holding up one particular person as a hero, and I think that's actually kind of important because I because the people that you see lionized as heroes tend to be the people that are lionized by heroes by nationalist movements. You see Joan of Arc being lifted up by French nationalists even today um, and put on this pedestal and and not treated as the complex and interesting, possibly genderqueer, possibly like, you know, possibly deeply rebellious sort of person. They just look at her as a national hero and that's all. That's all they care about. They don't, they're not interested in the complexities. Um, you can see that similarly with nationalists in the United States. They look at George Washington, and they don't want to see a complicated, deeply flawed figure. They want to see it as a hero that they can put on a pedestal. And so I would say when you're approaching the Middle Ages, don't necessarily go to it looking for these unvarnished heroes. Go looking for it. Go looking for neighbors. Go looking for people who are like you in their complexities. And from there, you will be far more satisfied than someone that you want to make a gold statue of. 
that that's really good advice. Um, I, I'm wondering, um, Amy, uh, are there contemporary forward-looking literatures or games related to medieval culture? Yeah, uh, there's. It's it's medievalism more than medieval, right? Um, so there's just been an explosion of amazing, really diverse, really thoughtful fantasy uh, that. Some of it, some of it is a different version of the Middle Ages um, from different times and places. Essay Chakraborty, uh, Tasha Suri, those are two of my favorite writers, uh, and they are writing. Um, Chakraborty is writing a sort of Muslim medievalism. Uh, Tasha Suri is writing uh, a Hindu-inspired medievalism. Um, Saladin Ahmed wrote a sort of version of the thousand and one nights, you know, and, and all these writers are making what we would consider a more progressive middle ages, not an inauthentic middle ages, but one that, that has as many voices in it as possible. Right. And, and as much, um, as much of a new perspective as possible. It's not that kind of stifling European fantasy where everybody meets up at the inn and everybody's white and drinking ale, right? It's it's a a much more authentic view of the Middle Ages. And I think games, some games are trying. (laughs) Certainly not all. Uh, Some games are more aggressive, but big franchises like Elder Scrolls, um, which, which in the beginning certainly suffered from the sort of Dungeons and Dragons hangover of racialization and sexism um, has really tried to, to make more progressive games each time it goes so that the Elder Scrolls Online, which is kind of its most recent iteration, has uh, diversity and gay couples and transgender characters. And they're really trying to make the world reflect the human world, you know, that was always there, but that we, we weren't taught about. I think the Dragon Age franchise has tried to do the same thing. And none of these are perfect, right? Um, but they're all making an effort to make a more realistic world. Right. And uh, Paul, um, I- I'm wondering if uh, uh, what, you ta- what hope you take away from studying the Middle Ages, if anything. Mm. Uh, plus a change, you know, <laughs> I think the hope that I take away from the middle ages is again, is in seeing the thing that I really like about the middle ages is that you can see people who are so unlike you and at the same time be shocked by a sentence that you read there that could have been written yesterday, that the people, though we now have iPhones and you know, high-speed trains if you don't live in the United States and, <laughs> you know, all of the wonderful trappings of post-modernity, that in some ways, people are people. And that is... I'll wait till the person with the loud engine goes by. <laughs> um, and and that gives me a certain... Uh, it, you, can, you can be depressed by that, but you can also take some hope by that. Um, that people in the Middle Ages were just as creative, were just as um, vigorously inventive as we are today, Um, even though the tools that they had were far less complicated and far less fast. um, It gives me hope, at least, that maybe we won't forever be stuck in the... be be mired in the horrible... um, regressive ways of thinking that a lot of us unfortunately have been raised with today. Um, that's not to say the middle ages was this panacea before racism and prejudice and things like that, but a lot of the economic and racial systems that we are plagued with even today are things that were sort of invented over the course of the middle ages and really, really came into fruition in the modern period. And so looking back at the middle ages, much like William Morris did with his looking back, before industrialism, it allows us to have a bit of hope that there is a way of living without this. And that hopefully, maybe, maybe at least it gives us something that we can point towards of, of getting beyond it. Right. Oh, that is uh, uh, maybe something to, to, to hold on to during these uh, troubling times. Um, 
Okay, last question. Uh, could you each tell us um, what new project you're currently working on? Amy, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, I am finishing up revisions to a novel, uh, which is set in the Middle Ages. So I've, I've taken a little bit of turn from, from academic work to fiction. Uh, and it's a, a story of a group of female assassins in 12th century Cordoba. And I was really drawn to uh, Al-Andalus because of the diversity of faith, because it's a, a place and a time where um, Jewish people and Christian people and Muslim people live together with varying levels of content and discontent uh, in a way that we we think is anathema to the Middle Ages. But really, it, that, that kind of interfaith living was at its core. Uh, so that's a component of the novel, but so is, you know, magic and stabbing and all the things that you would find in a, a historical fantasy. So that's been pretty fun. Wow, that sounds really exciting. Uh, Paul, uh, what do you have for us? Mm. Uh, well, I have a very aggressively middling garden <laughs> that is uh, that right now is producing gooseberries. Very pleased about that. It's good. Um, let's see. I also am still, you know, uh, editor of the Public Medievalist, so be looking for that uh, for new articles there. And I've just begun a new project that's still it's, I haven't really given it a name yet. Um, so this is the first time that I'm talking about it publicly. We'll see. Um, but I have written a lot about Dungeons and Dragons in the past. Um, and, uh, well, because I am a player, a GM and have been since I was like nine and I am in the process of seeing about putting together a D and D style book, uh, of my own. That is, uh, something that is set in that, uh, that would allow people who are playing D and D to use a more realistic idea of the middle ages than you get from standard fantasy um so we'll see early days but uh i'm pretty excited about it so well that sounds fascinating as well well thank you both for taking time to share your thoughts with us today we really appreciate it thanks so much for talking with us yeah thanks for having us that concludes our program thanks for listening and have a great day